This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. So here we are, season three of Driven by Data, the podcast. I'm delighted that you've decided to tune in and rejoin us. We've got some absolutely fantastic content coming your way. So all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. In order for your organization to make the best possible business decisions and to make the most of your data, you need the very best people. And that's where Orbition Group comes in. We have a proven track record in partnering with some of the largest brands in the world to the most innovative and disruptive startups and everything in between. We go beyond traditional recruitment services. The organizations which we partner with benefit from the added extras that we offer, such as raising your organization's brand awareness to the data and analytics community, providing you with insights into the current market and your competition, benchmarking you against the industry to give you the best chance to successfully attract the best talent. We want to become an extension of your business to identify, engage, attract and retain the best talent possible. If this sounds of interest, please reach out today by visiting orbitiongroup.com. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season three. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sami Rahman, who is the head of data engineering and data platform at Penguin Random House. So Sami, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Carl. No, pleasure is uh, is all mine. Looking forward to this. Um, so where we always start, Sammy, is by asking our guests to give themselves a, a brief introduction into their background and, I guess, journey up until this point in time, uh, if you would. Sure. I've got a weird background for most people in data. I started off as a psychologist. So I was working as a business psychologist looking at, um, funny enough, the patterns in data, how we improve recruitment and culture in uh, companies like SAP, HS2, Lloyds Bank. Uh, did that for a few months and decided to do a master's in counterterrorism at UCL. Um, so got to try a bit of private sector intelligence. Um, and it is honestly boring as hell, as cool as the movies make it look <laughs> so boring. Uh, you're just sitting there watching people, well, people watching terrorists talk about what they're going to eat most of the time. Um, then became like an MI5 reject. So I didn't get at MI5. So I rethought about what do I want to do with my life? spent nearly a year unemployed but i was just learning python and sql and all of that stuff back then and after 326 rejections i got into a wpp agency as a data scientist called essence which is now essence mediacom uh did that for a year and a half working on like bt group google universal l'oreal that kind of great stuff uh went into hsbc as a senior data scientist for marketing again but after a week i got promoted to product machine learning manager after three months, I got another promotion to fraud data machine learning services manager. So I was in charge of data science for card fraud for all of HSBC in the UK. So I had a big team there, about 30 or 40. Um, went and joined PwC in the deals division, uh, kind of looking at how they do mergers and acquisitions of technology and people across um, all the various clients. Um, but 
wasn't for me. And my second month in Penguin kind of reached out asking if I wanted to be in charge of their data engine and data platform. And I said, yes, and I've been there for the last two years. And but I will be leaving in five weeks to be the director of data at Hypebeast, which is a luxury fashion lifestyle company that does media, commerce, art, uh, retail, all of that great stuff. Nice. Well, first of all, congrats on the new role. Second of all, um, I'm not too sure how I didn't know about your background in psychology and uh, secret intelligence. Um, and thirdly, just having a quick look at your LinkedIn profile whilst you were talking there, that's some rise in a very quick time frame. So uh, kudos to you. Uh, yeah, obviously, yeah. we don't like to, to you know, go into careers and the nuts and bolts of that necessarily, but... Um, that's that's impressive to go from however many reject what do you say three hundred and twenty six rejections and then yeah uh, yeah a five I, I, six year period that span has you know trajectory has been been big yeah I've only worked for five or six years but I still remember um, I won't mention the company because they're quite big but I nearly gave up until this one particular company said I would never be able to get into this field and I'm wasting my time because I didn't study um, computer science, maths, or physics. And uh, I get such a delight when I get um, one of their salespeople emailing me, asking to use the services for, for every company I've been in. And um, I, I won't lie, it's very petty, but they're the only company I actually put the time in with to actually have a course. Like, oh yeah, by the way, you're, you told me I'd never work in data. <laughs> and I just reject them every single time. But um, yeah, it was really tough in the beginning, but I think the field is also, become a lot more diverse. There's a lot more people yep. with degrees, um, non-standard stuff like history, art, law. And I think that's just really nice to see that diversity of thought in the field of data as well nowadays, which didn't yeah. exist when I started. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that statement that you said from the organization, you know, you, you'll never get in here because you don't study computer science. That's That was everything that was wrong with the industry five years ago, right? That, and that's why we have all these conversations now around, you know, again, soft skills or people skills or human skills or whatever you want to call it. Right. Um, because we just, there was a one track mind on it, these people that come into this industry need to look like this. And there was no diversity of thought or diversity of anything else for that matter, actually in, in many regards. So, um, Look, let's uh, let's crack on. Obviously, we've got listeners in 140 something countries around the world, so not everyone might be familiar with uh, Penguin. So, just give us a very high level overview of of what that business does. Cool. So, most people recognise Penguin from their childhood because we have our logo in most of our kids' books. But we're the biggest trade publisher in the world. Um, we <clears throat> this is just in English. We do eighty five thousand new titles a year. Uh, if we do every language, I'm not sure, but it's quite a lot. Um, but we're comprised of nine kind of publishing houses. Um, one of them is Children's, which everyone seems to recognize, but then there'll be things like Vintage or Transworld, and they all have their own kind of like specialism. Um, but then what's even crazier, part of that, there's 400 companies underneath them. So we're like a massive kind of network of companies, and all of them are quite independent and allowed to like behave how they want. Um, publish how they want. And the main missions of Penguin is actually we want to make books accessible to everyone, no matter what your background is. We believe books can change your life. So one of the first questions you're asked when you're joined is, what was a book that changed your life? And we actually 
publish for everyone. We don't really care what your background is in terms of your demographic, politically, there will be something for you. So we, Penguin as a company, we try to actually get as many um, beautiful, life-changing and interesting books out there for everyone in the world. Yeah. Perfect. Nice. So you mentioned at the top of the conversation, obviously you joined Penguin to look after their data engineering capability and and, and kind of own their, their data platform, um, which obviously is going to shape this conversation. Um, so I guess just to to frame it, from a ML ops perspective, you've done some fantastic work, uh, you for Penguin, and then obviously, you know, Penguin's, what they've achieved through through that uh, in terms of you know building that mlops capability just give us a i guess a high level overview on you know what what building that capability has allowed penguin to do from a business standpoint and then we can unpack that as the conversation uh, unfolds if that makes sense sure um so mlops has been quite hot for the past say two three years and it's become even hotter with what's coming out on the market in terms of ai but I'll kind of paint the picture of what it was like before. Our data scientists, and I have been a data scientist, and so I've felt this pain as well. They were constantly constrained about what data they could get, what machines they could get underneath their AI models that they built to actually power that AI. But then when they were done and they built something they really liked and they were happy with and bought value, then most data scientists couldn't actually uh, productionize their models. So that means kind of like put it somewhere to run and make decisions or do something. And then a really big thing that actually made MLOps even bigger was actually, and I hate bringing up COVID because I'm over it, but it was COVID because all of humanity's data and our interaction with the internet completely changed. So nearly every AI model, and I saw this so much in banking and financial services, they all just flopped. They all just stopped working because people stopped behaving how they normally did. So that's called model drift. And what MLOps does, it tries to address every part of that challenge. How do we make it really easy for our data scientists to do experimentation, get their data, but get the machines they need? How do we also make it easier to turn those, because data scientists don't necessarily have the best um, application building skills. How do we t- turn that into an application much easier? How do we run it much easier? How do we watch how it's performing? Also very importantly, that drift that I mentioned earlier, how do we make sure that these models aren't decaying or um, not bring business value? How do we keep it at a level that's always operating really good? And how do we speed up that process as well? Um, if you'd like, I can go into actually how it's improved stuff at Penguin as well. Yeah, that'd be so great. It used to take um, our data scientists a few months to just build um, one machine learning model. They've turned that down into days. It used to take... Um, I believe it was a couple of days, like a week to train one machine learning model, just because of all these challenges. They're doing it in half an hour now. It used to take us four to five months to productionize a machine learning model. We are literally doing it in 20 minutes. And 15 of those 20 minutes is just spinning up a machine. The other five minutes is human driven. We used to have humans watching the models every single day and seeing, are they working well? And where does that fail? It fails on the weekends and public holidays because nobody's watching it. But now no one is watching it. There's a machine watching it, but we always use something called human in the loop monitoring. So if something goes wrong, a human is always told and a human will be the one that goes in and fixes it. But all in all, we measured like 12 areas of success. 
the average number was 200% increase in performance of every area measured. About eight of them were time-based and MLOps does save you a lot of time. But in terms of code quality, um, reproducibility, which is so important to the conversations today around ethics and explainability, that wasn't possible before. Now we can see the entire trail of why did this happen then? How did we put it together here? But also a really important part, which we should, which we'll talk about later, is more uh, data set versioning as well. Because in, in the data world, you don't necessarily change the data too much. You kind of keep it the same, slice it down so it's easier to report on, and you kind of do analytics on that. But in the data science world, you do a lot of transformation to your data. You might, uh, it's called like feature crosses and feature sets. I won't go super into it, but you apply a lot of statistical and mathematical calculations to change it to do something. Um, but if you've ever had an ICO audit or a regulator coming down your neck, if they're asking you this, this bit of data here that actually did this and made these decisions, how did you come up with it? A lot of times that information is lost, but MLOps system tracks all this. Um, I call them recipes to make it easier in the company. It tracks all those recipes. So in a nutshell, our data science team are quicker. Our engineering team is much quicker. The infrastructure, which is always the hardest bit to like do in productionizing machine learning models, not a problem. We're able to watch everything now and monitor it much better and understand the quality better. And also, lastly, but most importantly, that transparency, explainability, and reproducibility is all there now. Okay, fine. So we're talking about kind of efficiencies here we're talking about this kind of elements of of governance and kind of ethics and tracing where it's come from you're talking about the monitoring of you know uh, mm. the human in the loop of where it's not not gone wrong i guess from a commercial standpoint then and it doesn't need to be specifics but have you got any examples of what that's actually meant from a business standpoint in terms of you know giving the data scientists back that time what does that mean for the business more commercially so there was always talks that we need to hire more people now we don't need to. So like this entire system has cost us less than 50K and we've had, hadn't had to get extra headcount because of it. But then also data scientists and engineers, they were trapped doing just crap work, like a lot of cleaning, a lot of setting up of like computer infrastructure, which is fascinating if you're a proper computer person, but us data people are like half in, half out. We prefer the data stuff. They're not worrying about that anymore. They're actually doing more experiments. They're actually trying to find more use cases to deliver value from the organization. So in saving their time, they're not doing kind of administrative work. They're actually looking for more use cases. But not only that, that, that example I gave earlier of people having to look at these machine learning models, retrain them manually, and actually watch if they're working properly. If you kind of think of a baseline that's always fluctuating, you kind of want it to be at 70, 80%. But then when you have your weekends, you have your national holidays, and actually, if you have people that go on holiday, that baseline can drop to 50, 40, 30. But an MLOP system constantly keeps it at that. So you're actually getting incremental ROI much better than you were before. And another beautiful thing is because of all that reproducibility, that governance, if your entire data science and engineering team left and you had to hire a completely new one the next week, they can carry it on. You don't have that pain point of like, oh crap, this person's left. We don't have to run this thing anymore. Yeah, knowledge, knowledge leaving. Yeah, makes um makes perfect sense. I mean, it's quite a 
I mean, the, the whole topic around data science is always, I mean, I was involved in a LinkedIn thread earlier this week about, you know, about um, how organizations, you know, and they talk about data science and they talk about the data scientists not spending much time actually doing data science in most organizations. And, you know, a lot of it is sourcing data, cleaning data, fixing quality issues, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really interesting that uh, basically what you've built is allowing those people to focus their time and attention on higher value generating tasks, right? Which is, um, which is really interesting. Okay, cool. So I guess we've started at the one end of the spectrum of, of the kind of success and the benefits. Just take us back to, in your opinion, um, the kind of starting point, because as you said, two or three years, this has been kind of gathering pace. Um, for anyone that's not too familiar, I guess, why is this important then for organizations to be thinking about this? Because there's a lot of talk in the industry, as there's a lot of talk with many topics uh, in our industry, right? But there's not there's not loads of businesses out there doing this at scale, right? So I guess it'd be good to know why it's important and, and kind of where you think this has come from. Um, yeah, and then we can jump into its detachment from DevOps or not, as the case may be. <laughs> I think um, why it's really important is um, you're actually empowering your teams to do more valuable work. So actually talking to the business and actually getting those use cases and ideas. Um, it's much like if you're an artist and that's the best way to think of these people they're all really creative people you don't want your creative people to also be doing um things that could be automated and things that they're not necessarily interested in because then you also get employee disengagement but i think that's um probably not the bit everyone cares about but there's, there's definitely a bit i care about but then the other aspect is actually these things uh these machine learning models are now watched because and I am so guilty of this sin when I was younger. Um, I used to make machine learning models that I thought were really cool. I was like, yeah, let me, this, this problem here, mate, let me make a neural network or a Boltzmann machine or like some dimensional thing. Um, but MLOps actually forces you through the monitoring and through the testing process that engineers actually take you through to actually show how will this bring value on a particular KPI. And is it the most efficient thing to that KPI? So, um, because you have to set that all up, you have to say, actually, what, what thing are we actually monitoring and watching to show that there is a value? So that, that has really forced actually a lot of people to start thinking about, all right, maybe, maybe I don't need to do this crazy advanced thing that is probably looks good on my CV, but probably doesn't bring business value. Maybe I need to do something much simpler, much quicker and easier to, to train up, to watch all of that stuff. Um, but the way I've designed my MLOps anyway, is that the experimentation area for the data scientists, they can do whatever the hell they want. When it gets to the productionization stage, that's where those hard conversations happen. Cause you still want those abilities to, to exist and those, that creative thinking and curiosity to exist. Um, and then definitely that monitoring piece, it's, it's just become so much easier for people in the business to actually understand the value of it. Cause they're looking at graphs now, they're looking at a graph going up or staying stable. And they're looking at green and red numbers. And, the, and again, I've also been sinful of this in the past. When I had clients asking me, how, how did your machine learning model perform? I was like, yeah, the RMSE is like this. That's so cool, isn't it? Or, or by the way, these metrics are like this. And that is just amazing. And honestly, no one gives a shit. It was impressing me, but it wasn't impressing, uh, you know, the marketer from BT that didn't care. It wasn't impressing the salesperson from L'Oreal that didn't care. 
but because you're forced to say, how is this KPI being watched? They can actually see, all right, this machine learning model, it is costing me as a business in terms of the resource needed, the compute needed, it's costing me 20K, but the incremental growth on CPAs, ROAS, ROI is actually 20%. This is so worth it. That's so exciting. Because then they start thinking, wow, I'm saving all this people time as well in my area. There's more automation I can do. How can we expand this further and further? Um, but the bit that everyone finds boring, but I think is so important to mention, um, because it has all this monitoring and all this embedded governance inside it, we're seeing ICO releasing guidance. We're seeing the government release guidance. We're seeing the European Parliament release guidance. Uh, it's all crap anyway, and they clearly don't understand what they're talking about. But the one country that I've seen release really coherent regulations, China. But if you are a company that operates in those places as well, um, you could get asked by whatever law enforcement entity, what are all these things and how you, how are you proving information security, data security, and how are you ensuring bias, fairness, all of that stuff? If you don't have an MLOP system, it could take your data scientists and engineers months to figure that out and calculate that. And ICO, FCA, all of those places don't give you timelines that lenient. But all of this stuff's automated. I literally, if, God forbid, but if I did get audited and I was asked, where's all this stuff? It's two right clicks, download, here you go. Hmm. Okay. So, this is this is interesting because I guess when, you know, through the events that we host, through people we have on this podcast, you know, there's been various iterations of that kind of data leadership journey right you know so if you think about the the evolution of the cdo role and you know there's cdo version 1.0 it was all risk and compliance right and now we're at the other end of the spectrum on advanced analytics and artificial intelligence which is is great but i guess depending upon the business itself the sector the regulation everyone's got a slightly different priority set this seems like if you do it and you get it right, it, it's got benefits across the value chain, right? It's it's not just a, this is something that allows our data scientists to do more great advanced analytics. It's actually, this can, you know, from a governance standpoint, this can help us in terms of regulation, all of that type of good stuff and everything that's packed in, in between those two ends of that spectrum, which is cool. Yeah. It ties into what you asked me earlier, where does this come from? Um, and this... You can find any article about anyone who will tell you where this originated from. Who who knows what the history is, but it kind of originated in two predominant industries or categories of industries. One was tech. So obviously the tech people, and that's where I first started learning about this in my WPP days, because most of our clients were tech companies. They cared about performance. They cared about speed and time and actually um reproducibility they didn't tend to care about the other stuff but that that made it really quick that made it really easy for data scientists it didn't it didn't make it easy for the lawyers or the accountants or the engineers uh but in my time in banking um it's probably the most painful envelopes i ever saw but they really cared about governance reproducibility risk management risk appetites and control and i think the nice world is the balance between the both how do you try to ensure all of that stuff but keep that flexibility creativity and speed up um i'd say it usually comes from those two industries technology and regulated industries they have completely different needs and wants and there isn't a one-size-fits-all for like every industry 
I'm fortunate that mine isn't a regulated industry, but it's also not a tech industry. So I can try to go for the middle ground with my organization. I think most companies could as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Makes uh, makes perfect sense. So um, there was a conference um, this week in Manchester, um, mm-hmm. and I saw several of my LinkedIn network that were obviously there. And part of there was a there was a several people have put the same picture of the of the uh, presentation up on LinkedIn, which uh, basically stated something like MLOps is the new DevOps. Or something, something along those types of of lines, right? Which um, I was kind of pondering for for a little bit, thinking about all the conversations I've had, which um, many MLOps people refuted to <laughs> to the hilt. Um, so let's jump into that then. I guess is it different to DevOps in your opinion, and if so, how? Um, so I can see why people would make that connection, and I'd say there is parts of MLOps and AIOps. I'd actually say AI ops is closer to DevOps than MLOps is closer to DevOps. And we can definitely explore the difference between MLOps and AI ops. But it does, it does try to take some of that best practice from software engineering of, uh, can you make your code reproducible? Can you make your data reproducible? In DevOps, they really care about continuous integration, continuous development. You have that in MLOps as well, but you actually go further. And the acronym is such a mouthful. The acronym is CICD CTCL, which is continuous integration, continuous development, continuous training, continuous monitoring. So you're taking that retraining of the model and giving it fresh data to the AI all the time. That, that concept is there from CI or CD, whatever. And the continuous monitoring is also stolen from that kind of mindset. So. Oh, I understand why that relationship is made because some of the, there's a lot of similarity of actually, can we split up our workflow into an experimentation area or development in DevOps? Can we have a testing area, which is exactly the same? Can we have an area for actually running it and producing it? And then when we do that, how do we push changes to code, push changes to data and stuff like that? Um, I think it really is a matter of opinion. Some people will tell you it's completely different and they're not the same in the same sense as Satsuma and uh, Orange ain't the same thing. They're like similar in different ways, but different in similar ways. That is a cop-out answer, but um, they're, yeah, they're not the same thing. There's completely different kind of nuances, fields of understanding, because you don't really care about the nuances of statistics and DevOps, but you have to in MLOps. In both of them, you do care about the nuances of cloud computing. And both of them, you do care about the nuances of workflow. And some of that um, best practice is taken from DevOps. But where AI ops, and I'll say AI ops is much more similar to DevOps um, because it is exactly the same as DevOps, but it's the application of artificial intelligence to the DevOps lifecycle to make it faster, smoother, and smarter. Sometimes people confuse the two, but how I'd say it is MLOps is an interpretation of DevOps applied to the machine learning lifecycle. And AI ops is the application of artificial intelligence to the DevOps lifecycle. Nice. Well, I like the uh, the Satsuma analogy. I'm going to use that one. Yeah, try and pass it off as my own. So thanks for that. Yeah, and then the ML ops and the AI ops. Yeah, interesting, but uh, I like the way that you break break that down. That makes perfect sense. So if you can explain it to me, then you can explain it to anyone, Sammy. So that's uh, you're on the right tracks there. Um, 
Okay, so look, what what we always like to do on this podcast is try to make sure that we leave the audience with kind of tangible, practical hints, tips, here's what you should think about, etc. So I guess if there are any people out there that are thinking about, you know, implementing MLOps into their organization, what would you say that the kind of the key components of consideration are for them at, at this point in time, you know, from from the outset? So um the mistake I always have seen in my career, um, there's one penguin you've made, and I've seen loads of clients do it, is they start with technology. Uh, technology is a really important part of it, but when you start then, you don't necessarily know what MLOps is. You kind of end up buying a very big player who's very expensive, and you don't necessarily know what you're going to use them for. So I think the first thing to do is actually, do we have any type of MLOps? It might be a messy, dirty one that's just done without the right technology. It might just be done on our cloud platform. How does that kind of look today? What is the pain the data science team are feeling? What is the pain the engineering team is feeling? And this might sound kind of productive, but actually bring in your security infrastructure and infosec teams and say, by the way, we don't have this. Are you aware of the risks of not having it? They won't understand them. They won't understand the machine learning and AI stuff so much, apart from what they have done their research on. But if you explain to them, if I have this, I can actually ensure good security and AI, uh, AI, infosec um, compliance as well. I need you on this journey with me because you don't want to implement in this kind of infrastructure and they come out of nowhere and say, this ain't good enough. So what I did is I first looked at what's the pain point of the data science team what would be the pain of my team if they asked us to productionize one of these things? How do I actually bring along all these other stakeholders onto this journey? So how do I bring on the other technical stakeholders who could become my gatekeeper? How do I bring in different people in the business to help them understand if we have this, it'll be really good. You don't need to worry about the nerdy tech stuff, but if we have it, it'll be good to support it. Um, but we actually did a selection process of 20 companies and all of those stakeholders involved my team the data science team but all of those other tech teams people would forget about but in in that process of actually talking to everyone um i actually figured out none of the really big players but one of them would actually benefit us i had a list of 20 took took the entire i called it the the, the committee there's, there's like 20 or 30 people on it. By the way, talking to all of you, there are four areas we're actually missing in the company. And out of the list of 20, only these four actually service those four areas we're missing. And if we went with one of the big players, we could have spent $300,000. But because we went with the correct player that suited our needs, we're only spending about 48K, which is quite nice. And we saw demos, we asked them questions. And what was really lovely was even though there's people in the room that didn't actually understand what the hell MLOps platform tool is, they were asking security questions like how you how are you protecting it, how are you servicing it. There was information security people asking how are you ensuring we're safe. There was infrastructure people asking how does it connect to AWS, how does it connect to Azure, and what was really nice was those vendors were asking the question, and I wasn't answering to the people internally like how do we do all of this. We actually came up with that idea together. So I don't like to think of this as my MLOps platform was all about. Um, 
but that's the best way to start. Don't just go with a big player because you heard their name or you saw them at a conference or you heard great things about them. Actually first figure out what is the pain in the company and what are the blockers internally from preventing us from getting better value from data. Then take a bunch of them out on the market from startups to established players to the behemoths and start figuring out do they tick off the boxes that I need eternally and then start figuring out, will they integrate with what I have already? Yeah. Keen to get your opinion on the, the, the kind of tech and tooling landscape in terms of, of MLOps, because obviously it seems like you've gone through a fairly robust exercise on understanding what each player is capable of, of doing, which I think, you know, parts of the audience will, will certainly find interesting, I guess in relation. So you talked about that committee there, right. And bringing everyone in i guess one question that um that i hear a lot of is when you know data leaders or business leaders are thinking about this stuff and obviously it's it's always difficult right because these things become buzzwords in their own right and there's a bit of fear of missing out that goes on you know you're like, oh, everyone's talking about mlops should we be doing mlops and i think that's often the question is you know do we have need for MLOps, it sounds like from everything you're saying that there's not going to be many businesses that couldn't benefit from from implementing MLOps. But just give us a bit of steer on that in terms of how you take the business on the journey to understanding, right, we're going to do this because, you know, it, it does X, Y, and Z in terms of helping us get value out of what we're already trying to do, right? If that makes sense. Yeah, it's just straight up honesty. Yeah, <laughs> I find the buzzwords bring nothing to people. And to be fair, I I had to like I, I learn all of this stuff like a moron. I always start off with like, how does a five year understand it and sit? Because um, I never had that academic background and all this stuff. But it's always starts with honesty. Of um, by the way, we don't have this. And in two to three sentences, what is it? Because if you spend any more time on it, they're going to switch off. If we don't, because we don't have this thing, these are the problems we have. If we did have this thing, these are the benefits we could see. And generally, most people don't want a lecture. They just want the, the really simple, straightforward of what is it in very simple terms? What's the problem of not having it? What's the problem? Sorry, what's the benefit of having it? And um, I don't, I think if you put too much effort into that and make it a lecture, then it just, looks like you're begging. And I think if it's really simple, succinct, straightforward, that's the quickest way you get people on board. Then they'll start formulating their own questions and answers and they'll get excited and want to come along. But I think uh, what I see a lot is people really start on the, the benefit and the buzzwords and make really outlandish claims using use cases. But a lot of people don't re really relate to that. Like, in, I'm, I'm a book company. Do we really give a shit what a furniture company did or what a um, what Uber did? Not really. It's it's not relatable. So that's why that whole internal investigation was helpful. If we did this, we would have 17 better reviews on this category. Blah blah blah. Yeah. There's real figures that were estimates that they were much better at actually bringing the business on the journey. Yeah, I guess in your opinion, then is there is there a, a specific time? You know, in, in a in a business's life cycle, journey, maturity, whatever you want to call it, is there a time where MLOps becomes more applicable and relevant or should most businesses, in your opinion, be looking at this because it's a it's a big optimization piece across across the board? 
That's a really good question. It's such a hard one to answer. Um, <laughs> in the most ideal world, um, this will come later. Once you have your the business intelligence side of data and data quality correct, that is the perfect time. But the challenge that most companies have is they hire the data scientists first, and then they're really bored because they don't they have bad data quality. They don't have good data access. And not only that, they're kind of used as data analysts as opposed to scientists. So I think the right time to bring in MLOps is when you have a good control over your data, a good governance over your data. Um, and you, you can actually ensure some of that quality to your data science team. That is generally the right time to bring it in. Now, reality is never like that. And a lot of companies are doing data science to some degree before they've got any of that right. But if you are in that position, then you might as well get it because then that'll just speed up that team and make them quicker. And they can work on some of the governance and quality stuff as well. Because data governance and ML governance are completely two different things. They're, they're siblings. Um, but a lot of companies are looking at generative AI and stuff like that. Um, some companies are looking at building their own. I would not bother unless you have one of these because you need to do a specific type of um, MLOps called like LLM ops or diffusion ops, which if you don't have one of these systems, it's going to be really hard. And then companies end up spending a lot of money and then deciding to go with open AI or one of those guys and massive enterprise contracts for their stuff. So, um, ideally after you clean up some stuff and stabilize your, the data on your company, that's the best time. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it, it seems it doesn't really matter what the stage of the evolution or the buzzword, right? You know, we were saying the same thing about data science. We we're saying now we're saying the same thing about ML ops. We'll say the exact same thing about generative AI, right? You know, but it's still most organizations when they embark upon their data journey, they are, you know, attracted by the shiny bright lights over here and they jump into it. So it was data science. It's now ML ops, you know, and there's countless conversations I have where, you know, organizations are right. We don't have a data team. We know that we can get value out of this. We want to build it. Um, so we're going to hire some ML ops engineers and I'm like, pardon <laughs> what, like what? Where, where, where does this come from so it's interesting but yeah like, as you say if if they've already invested and they've got data scientists sat there who are you know um not not being very efficient or effective because they're basically doing all the data quality work then it might be might be a valid investment to speed that process up right which is uh is interesting you start to talk there about uh llm ml ops i think i got that right um just talk to us about the relationship. I know you said it's, you know, you, you shouldn't be looking at LLM stuff if you've not got ML ops, but just talk to us about that that kind of timeline and relationship. Yeah, it's just, um, there's ML ops, right? I know everyone's calling it shiny, but I don't personally find it that shiny, but it's a lot more straightforward in terms of your architecture technologically. You need some databases, you need um, experimentation platform, you need, the correct pipelines, you need whatever testing tools you use, you need model monitors, feature stores. Um, you also need all the compute underneath. So it's kind of, it, do, it doesn't matter who you go with, the kind of things you need is kind of similar. But in in the space of like large language models or diffusion models, you kind of need more things out the box. You kind of need like vector databases, ideally. Some people don't go with them. You kind of need much larger machines. You also need um, what's called 
federated deployment. So like some AI, you can just put it onto one computer. Um, for some large language models, you might want to kind of split them across multiple computers and stitch them together to, um, and there are benefits to that and down, downsides to that as well. I mean, open AI does do the split artificial intelligence kind of infrastructure. Some places like a lot of the open source stuff is just on one or two things. So, um, but fundamentally you need to build your MLOps first before you even go down there. And then on the, on the image front, you actually need, um, a few more things I believe, I don't know if the top of my head, but you might need things that can like process images better and label images and stuff like that. So, um, they're related. The workflow is similar, but you just need a few more technology elements if you're trying to build your own. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you spoke earlier on about, I guess, the benefits of MLOps and you started to talk about ethics and I think the the whole thing around explainability has become a huge talking point, which has kind of, you know, risen its head again out of the whole generative AI mm. movement, right? And and I guess how businesses are now jumping into into this. I guess what's what does that relationship look like in terms of MLOps, in terms of considering things like ethics and the explainability piece? Um I think this is a debate that's been had since I started. And it's definitely got it feels like every year that goes on that this is the year we need to have the debate. And I think the challenge I've always seen is you have data nerds like ourselves that have an idea of like how it should look, but how, how does that look? It looks like a grid of numbers, which is not useful to the lawyers. Then you have lawyers who give you like a philosophical take. And then from a data perspective, that's quite hard to, to reach. Like even the, even the, even the term explainability. There's just so many different interpretations. Like for an average Joe on the street, explainability literally is like, what does it do? What's it looking at? What's going on in it? Now, but from a from a data nerd's point of view, it's like they can they can give you all the data. They can give you maybe the outputs and some some stuff that's happened there, but it doesn't mean shit to anyone. So, and I'm not gonna lie, even sometimes to me, it doesn't mean anything. Um, so really explainability, um, how it's been kind of manifesting is like what's gone into it, what data have you put into it? And a lot of, um, a lot of the regulation is don't put any sensitive data in there. So that covers all the demographics that you can't discriminate against. Also stuff like sexual history, um, health, like all of that stuff. Because they think by not putting that in, you're actually protecting the consumer. And that might be true in a lot of cases, especially in the demographical cases. But honestly, you don't need that to, to infer stuff. So if you looked at my Amazon shopping behavior, you could tell I'm Muslim. If you looked at someone's book buying behavior, you could probably tell they have depression. If you looked at, actually a great example is my wife. Um, we don't have any kids, but from her Amazon purchase behavior, you could probably figure out she's pregnant and going to have a kid soon. So like that, that's one thing in explainability that people try to go about to kind of like protect consumers. But the most famous example was in America, Apple have credit cards that had unique interest rates. They did not put any sensitive data inside the, the model that generated the interest rate at all. But women had a much higher interest rate than men. Like it was like hundreds of percent more. 
Wow. But there was nothing that said that they were women, nothing at all. But the ML model kind of inadvertently came to that conclusion from actually what women were buying was considered to be high risk purchases. What was a high risk purchase? Luxury purchases. What's a luxury purchase? Stuff that women would buy. Like, um, and again, this isn't my opinion. This is what happened in the story. Things like makeup or hair products or, um, the volume that was seen as high risk purchases. So I think explainability is actually how did it come to some of those relationships and conclusions? But then there are machine learning models that it's very hard to do. There's the term white box versus black box. White box is very clear to see each decision and how it kind of came to that conclusion. And you can kind of explain it pretty easily. You can even get very simple ones and get like a GCSE uh, student and they can say, oh yeah, it, it went there because it was like high probability there. But then some of the stuff we're using now, it's just very hard to explain. And for, like a lot of these LLMs and the hallucinations they came up with, I think you'd struggle to explain it. Even the people that designed it, they would struggle to explain it. So I don't think anyone really knows what it is. They know what the aspiration is. Um, but I think what's clear is bias. How do we try to remove? And that was what that whole story about Apple was. I forgot to signpost it. But that that is the much easier thing to kind of look at. And a lot of people try to do that by programming out areas of data where there's bias. But I think that's probably the wrong approach. We should probably build evil AI that tries to find every bias relationship that we can find in data and then kind of use that as the, oh, if you see any of these relationships, don't use them because we know it's evil. Um, yeah. Honestly, Carl, no one's figured it out. A lot of people will try to tell you they have, but I don't think anyone's got a clear answer on how do we make it explainable, transparent. There are methods, but nothing's perfect. There's nothing that makes the lawyers happy. The lawyer's take doesn't make the data people happy. Then the politician's take is nonsense anyway. But because there's definitely parts of really valuable machine learning and AI that we can, that'll be very hard to, to explain. Yeah, makes sense. Conscious of time, but I kind of want to delve into this a little bit, uh, just a, a touch more, I guess. In terms of the explainability piece within the context of what you've done and what you've built, I guess how do you how do you help the people within the business who aren't clued up in this space around helping them to understand the outcomes in the context of their world? That's a great question. And something like an MLOP system makes it much easier because regardless of what you do, you can see what's gone into it, you can see what transformations have happened. But in what's called a feature store, where you've done like data transformations, you actually say why you why you as a human chose to do that transformation and what benefit it brought. So that makes it much more easily explainable. Um, but also you have like model governance and AI governance, and you have something called a registry. So it's like every type of AI you have, and you kind of explain what is it trying to look at and what is it trying to um, actually achieve. Now. No one will ever get the nuance or the maths or statistics behind it. And because that's just such a massive field in itself. But all you can try to do to make it more explainable is show what was the workings? What, what is the recipe to this thing? What were the ingredients that went into it? And then how did we track to ensure that it always operated at a good level? And then if you have really massive things like that make thousands of decisions a second, you can you probably find it hard to explain one particular decision 
but you'd find it much easier if you have all that information before to actually explain a category of decisions. Why does it kind of lean that way? And I think the thing I like to think about is if you're having a walk in the park that has like loads of paths and you take a very particular path, if somebody asked you, why did you take a breath by that tree? You'd be like, I don't know. I need to breathe. Why did you blink at that particular time? You're like, I don't know. I need you to blink. But if you're like, oh, what did you do? It's like, oh, I, I wanted to take a walk through the park and I wanted to take a route through the walking past the pond because that would lead me to the cafe. But in, in that decision, as a human, your body and your mind, you make thousands of decisions consciously and subconsciously. That's much easier to explain than each individual decision on like these massive uh, artificial intelligence models. But you need that information that I talked about earlier to actually explain that narrative much more easily than if you'd never tracked it in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Right. To finish then. So there'll be people listening to this that are thinking, right, okay, this MLOps thing, we're going to give it a go. We're going to, you know, we know what we need to think about. Talk to us about the actual skills from a kind of personnel perspective that you're going to need to have within your team to be able to deliver on some of this stuff. And then just quickly wrap around that, the the tech and tooling space. I know you give us some insight into what you should look for, what you shouldn't look for, but just, you know, try and wrap all that together for us. Uh, sure. So from a personal perspective, um, you're obviously going to need some data scientists. That's the probably number one. You're going to need some data engineers and data architects to make sure that the data that the data scientists are getting are good. Um, you can upskill some of your data engineers to do some MLOps production. It's generally much easier when the data engineers have been a former data scientist. So I am one myself, but I've got people on my team that work as data scientists. But a lot of places are getting like MLOps engineers. Now, I don't think their role is clearly defined because just from their job title, they wouldn't be a data scientist or an engineer. They would literally be taking the data scientist output and running it and making sure it's running. But a lot of MLOps engineers are just doing everything, the data science bit, the engineering bit, and they seem to love it. Um, I think this might be a controversial take. Maybe the MLOps community would kill me for this, but I think you should get MLOps engineers once you've really grown the capability and the benefit from MLOps. In the beginning, you might need some scientists, maybe an architect, an engineer or two. Once you show it's really valuable and start making your registries really big, your governance catalogs really big, and you start getting more and more data products, machine learning data products on there, then you should get some MLOps engineers. Um, it's also a new role banding about recently called an ML architect. And so it sounds cool in principle, but I don't think I've ever met one. I don't think I've actually seen one, but they're supposed to be people that draw out what the actual end-to-end -end AI architecture is and how it all fits together. Um, but if I'm honest, I think a data scientist can do that with an engineer anyway. But um, honestly, not a massive change to current teams, maybe a specialist engineer. And then on the technology bit, um, I guess we'd have to go back to what I said earlier, is really assess what you need and what you're missing and what would benefit you the most. Um, but happy to share what we use because um, we've signed contracts now and it should be public information. Our machine learning platform is a player no one's really heard of, a very small company called Velohi. They're a Finnish company. You can see they're very passionate about all of this. So we use them for actually the experimentation, the running of models, and they're completely agnostic to what technology you use in your company works with anything works at any language 
which is a massive benefit because the um right now everyone uses python and amazon google and well what's the other one microsoft um but you never know in the future people might use a program language called snail and everyone uses starbucks cloud platform but yeah Velo i can work on anything which is really cool um for our feature store we use the open source thing called feast by tecton but we're but snowflake have released their own so, and we snowflake at my company so we might actually take stock there about whether we should remove our open source one for the enterprise snowflake we have for our model monitor, we're using evidently AI, which is quite a popular one in the community. Uh, but Veloha will be having their own model monitor soon. So we might actually deprecate that in favor of Veloha's. Um, but there are loads of players in this space. So data IQ is a very famous one. They're quite useful for end to end. Uh, clear ML is quite popular for like very bespoke machine learning. Um, data robot. Neptune, Cube for MLflow, and obviously I can't leave out Google, Amazon's, and Azure's versions of MLOps as well. So there's quite a lot of players out here. The best thing is to look at what you're missing or what you need. Nice. Well, Sam, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for uh, dumbing this very complex topic down for me to understand. And uh, <laughs> yeah, best of luck um, with what's to come in the future in terms of the new transition and uh, yeah, the new, new family. And um, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Nice one too. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Mm -hmm.